Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and today I'm joined by Alex Stewart. Oh, hello. And Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hello, Joe. Uh, we are doing the three of us today. We've asked you to ask us lots of questions. You did. There were 400. Uh, we can't answer all of those, but we can answer about 10, probably, depending on how long we waffle. Uh, so in today's episode, we're going to talk about the Court of Arbitration for Sport verdict on Manchester City's appeal. Uh, we're going to talk about Mourinho at Spurs, Bruno Fernandes at Manchester United, Liverpool's lack of transfer activity, financial effects of the pandemic, everyone's favourite topic, um, a little bit about Everton, uh, maybe some other things. I won't mention those because if we don't get to them, uh, people will be very upset. So there you go. That's uh, today's episode. And also, we are delighted to be able to say that we're offering 30-day free trials to The Athletic. Uh, if you visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, you'll be able to retrieve that wonderful offer and spend the next 30 days for free surfing the web like it's 1999, back before anything bad ever happened. Uh, and after an awful lot of bad things did happen. But wasn't there, there was that wonderful period, wasn't there? People talk about it, it was the, the 50s, the golden 50s. No, 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 no. It was the 90s. I was alive then, I remember it. The golden sheen. Oh, it was great. But anyway, uh, that's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. And uh, it certainly made my research for today's episode much, much easier. So without further ado, uh, I leave you in the cool embrace and the warm hands of myself, Alex Stewart and Seb Stafford-Bloor. Okay, question number one uh, comes from Platinum. Platinum. Is financial fair play fit for purpose after today's uh, appeal verdict? So that question was obviously asked um, after... Monday's news, and I'm going to quickly read a quote from Sam Lee here from a piece in The Athletic just so that we can bring everyone up to speed who may not be with us. The Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled the allegation that City artificially inflated their sponsorship agreements was not established, not proven, or time-barred. Time-barred just meaning after the statute of limitations, so any alleged offence that may have happened, I think, before five years ago. So there is no Champions League ban. Uh, that's been overturned, and uh, City will be in the competition next season. It did find that they'd breached Article 56 of the club licensing and FFP regulations by failing to cooperate with UEFA's investigation, which is why there is a £9 million fine, reduced from the original £25 million fine that UEFA imposed in February. So, I mean, the obvious way of looking at this is a win for Manchester City. Um, I think as we approached the uh, the deadline and the day that the news was announced, um, it seemed to be less and less of a surprise. Uh, reports were that people behind the scenes at Manchester City were very confident. Um, they felt that they had a strong case. So Seb, should we start with you then? I mean, the question here is, is financial fair play fit for purpose after today's appeal verdict? So I guess we can infer from what's, what's happened with Manchester City, but we're having a, a broader conversation about the regulation itself. I think it's a bit early to, to pass judgment on that. I mean, UEFA, UEFA released a statement after the judgment came down. It was certainly very bullish. Um, we're still yet to find out whether there's going to be an appeal. Um, so we should probably um, pause for thought before um, going too far down that line. I mean, I wonder whether the issue isn't necessarily financial fair play. It's more UEFA's prosecution of financial fair play, if that makes sense. Because these time-barred issues... Um, I know rival fans will kind of squabble over them and sort of suggest that, um, you know, that uh, there shouldn't be a statute of limitations in this kind of situation. But ultimately, it characterizes UEFA as being a bit lackadaisical, doesn't it? 
yeah. that's kind of certainly certainly what it infers to me. And also, I've seen um, in some sort of informal social media type conversations today, people saying, "Well, you know, why wasn't this dealt with at the time? Why why were cities um, alleged um, indiscretions not prosecuted as and when they came up?" and I think the answer to that is, as with almost anything to do with UEFA, is it's an incredibly opaque organisation. It's a slow-moving organisation. It's it reminds me a little bit of the football league uh, in the way that it, it deals with this kind of case, and that's not a compliment. If anyone was sort of a um, a kind of cursory knowledge of the current cases ongoing in the football league, will know what I mean. Um, so it's strange. I don't know. I don't know whether it's the end of FFP. I think that's slightly premature. I think the yeah. bigger issue, Joe, is actually what is UEFA's future? Um, what kind of reforms is this going to provoke? I mean, the way that we've talked about this before, there are many different ways to interpret what's happened. Uh, and there are more extreme versions, i.e. people saying that this is the end of, of financial fair play. Maybe, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Um, and also, uh, how can UEFA claim to have any sort of authority over clubs. I mean, obviously, the ruling suggests that, uh, well, with the exception of the stuff that is time-barred or not established, meaning that, that UEFA failed to provide evidence enough to prove some of the points they were making, the suggestion here is uh, essentially, whatever way you look at it, that UEFA don't have the ability to regulate what's going on. That is one way that someone might interpret this. And I think that was always the worry when you end up in situations where the owners of a football club are far richer and have far greater resources than the people who are supposed to be overseeing that club. Now, in this case, I mean, there's been a, there's been an investigation and an appeal, and it would appear that, that Manchester City have been... Uh, exonerated of that original ban so let's not talking about it as it relates to this particular case but it certainly does raise some uh, interesting questions about UEFA's ability to regulate and of course there are I think as well on a broader note two different ways of looking at what financial fair play is for the sort of pure reason that it was uh, brought in in the first place to ensure that situations like Portsmouth's don't reoccur, that people can't come in and uh, you know destroy a football club that's been around for a hundred years over a very short period of time due to poor financial mismanagement. You know, I think, and I think everyone agrees that that's a sensible thing to do. We don't want to see football clubs going under. Another way of looking at it, and I think this is maybe if you were a City fan, for example, the way that you might be tempted to look at it is that, well, it does do that, but it also, it protects the established elite. Uh, against a club like City, who might be described as nouveau riche, you know, their their new money, they spent a lot early on to to sort of uh, ascend the league table, and uh, these these sorts of regulations are really there to stop those clubs um, interfering with what's happening at the top. You know, that's, a, that's another conspiracy theory about financial fair play, that it suits the big players because they've had, you know, decades to get their uh, commercial activity in place and be able to essentially fund themselves to spend hundreds of millions of pounds every year. Whereas new clubs who might uh, rely on more support from, from an ownership and an ownership who are committed to a club and, you know, aren't necessarily going to let them get into financial trouble, that it prevents... Um, vertical movement within the leagues. So, I mean, I think it depends really what view you take on I it. I think prevents and... is strong, don't you think, Joe? I mean, prevents vertical movement, prohibits it or makes it tougher. I mean, it stops clubs performing the quantum leap, the kind of the Abramovich jump that they used to be able to, I think is, is yeah. probably how I put it. I think I think the point with, with this a lot is to do with the fact that it's, say, a similar situation to, to VAR, where you have a set of rules which ostensibly makes sense and then the issue is around how those rules are enforced or enacted 
So I find it quite odd, for example, that there's a five-year statute of limitations on things. In, in English civil law, for example, it's seven years, um, which is quite a standard thing. You know, it, it, it's why people keep paperwork for certain periods of time and so on. So you would think that that this might prompt less of a, a rethink around the actual essence of financial fair play, but but certainly a more structural rethink around how it's investigated and how it's enforced. Obviously, I think that the issue that you highlighted where certain clubs do have incredibly deep pockets and they can string things out if they know that there's a fairly, um, <clears throat> you know, relaxed statute of limitations. Five years is not an awful lot of time to engage in these deeply complex uh, investigations. If they can string it out and they can delay the process in court, then that's obviously beneficial. And the more money you have, the more lawyers you have, the more you can hold things up. So I, I think I, I would take perhaps a more generous view and say that you know ffp is probably still fit for purpose if uefa can find a way of investigating and enforcing it that is uh more streamlined and, and more effective but then i would argue that you know we're operating in in the world of sports and finance which are probably the two areas that are least adept at, at, at being regulated or regulating themselves uh, I was going to say a little more communication. I mean, to add to your point as well, a little more communication uh, from UEFA about how FFP is supposed to um, uh, p- punish offending clubs because it, it almost seems random. And, and, and you know, I'm thinking of, of like uh, your everyday supporter in the stands who, like me, hasn't hasn't delved through the legal documents. Um, every time there's a there's a ruling, uh, FFP related ruling, the punishment just, just seems kind of. I'm sure it's not, but to me, it seems sort of random. I have I have really have very little grasp on uh, on uh, what those punishments are supposed to be. Is that just me? No, no, I think I th- I think that's the opacity that that Seb was referring to earlier. That, that you know these these governing bodies uh, sit above sport and in a way uh, that that kind of privileged position uh, of the arbiter of certain things means that they probably aren't as communicative as it's incumbent upon them to be. Uh, and I think that applies to UEFA sanctions with regards to a range of different offences. You know, we'll sometimes see things to do with. Uh, teams or or even uh, nations being punished for racism or for displays of of politics on shirts or for crowd trouble. And these things do seem pretty arbitrary. And I'm sure there is a rationale and a process to them. But I think it would help the average fan considerably if they understood with a a bit more detail uh, what those things were. Uh, okay, well, listen. Uh, the Ornstein and Chapman podcast uh, covers this uh, this case in in depth this week. So, if you're looking for something to listen to to uh, understand everything that's happened from the um, the CAS ruling and the verdict, then uh, there'll be a link in the description. You can you can go and check that out. Uh, next question comes from Ben S. Weston. What issues does Mourinho have at Spurs? And to kick us off here, I've taken a quote from Charlie Eccleshare. It's quite funny, actually, depending on who you support. Uh, Charlie said, and this is, I should stress, this is before the victory in the North London derby. So this is after the uh, the Bournemouth result, which was a nil-nil draw. Charlie says the following, soul-destroying games take many different forms. There are the draws and defeats snatched from the draws of victory. There are thrashings, there are big occasions that end in heartbreak. And then there are ones like Thursday night's nil-nil draw at Bournemouth. Matches so dispiriting that by the end you can barely bring yourself to get upset anymore. This was the culmination of months and months of decline. A disastrous season that seemingly just will not end. 
Uh, that's pretty extreme. <laughs> uh, Seb, I'm going to go to you first because I think this is quite a good backdrop to, to, to base our conversation. And what issues does Mourinho have at Spurs? Um, clearly more beyond just Mourinho's uh, seeming inability to manage a football club at a top level anymore. Maybe that's too harsh. Maybe it's not. It does feel like there's uh, some familiar issues here that we've seen previously at clubs that he's, he's managed, certainly in the last five years. Well, first, let's just... Um... Let's just uh, attest to the accuracy of, uh, of Charlie's quote, because um, after that game finished, I watched a, um, a YouTube broadcast by my friend Alistair Gould, reporter at Football London, and it left me so depressed, I just went to bed. I just went to bed immediately <laughs> after. It was about sort of 9.20 evening, and everything he said was so true, and he was talking about sort of the, um, the available budget for the summer and the likelihood of certain players leaving, um, and he was trying to kind of infer certain positives from... Um, the Bournemouth performance and came up empty. And by the end of it, I just stopped it, closed down my computer and just went off to bed and I was asleep within 10 minutes. <laughs> just <laughs> the end of the day. I, I think um, Mourinho doesn't have um, a problem in the sense of that you, you hear a lot about third year syndrome with Mourinho um, and about his combustibility and uh, about the tension he creates with people that employ him. I don't think we've reached that stage. He obviously has a few issues with people within the squad Tangi and Dembele, obviously, I think that's a situation which has reached a, a point of no return. Um, he's actually injured now, so we probably won't see him for the rest of the um, rest of the season. Uh, he might not play for Tottenham again. So that kind of butting heads, that tendency to butt heads with high-profile players who aren't yeah. quite what he wants them to be, his inability to to mould certain footballers in the way that he was once able to, that's a problem. But I think the most prohibitive factor is structural. He's walked into a a squad environment where he doesn't actually have the tools to succeed. He has the tools to do slightly better than he might be doing at the moment. But it's very hard to ignore the fact that he doesn't have a, a pair of workable fullbacks. His defence all of a sudden looks old and slow. Even uh, you know, even Toby Alderweireld, who um, was recently awarded a new contract. He's got big issues in, in central midfield where he doesn't actually have a proper static screening ball winner. Um, I know the, the term ball winner is a little bit arcane, but um, Tottenham are clearly very porous in that area. And as they did during the latter years of Maurizio Pochettino's reign, they're having to find solutions with imperfect pieces. And on top of which, there are there are question marks about Harry Kane. I mean, they, he is... Um, I mean, the, the commentary around football tends to be a little bit binary. So a player is either um, the very best of the world or absolutely finished. Um, and I don't think Kane is at either of those extremities. But there is very clearly a um, an issue with the wear and tear that he suffered throughout his career and the succession of injuries. Well, he's locked himself camp. into a contract as well, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, from Harry Kane's standpoint, he's in a very difficult situation because he's got four years left on his contract. And no matter how disenchanted he may become with this rebuild or with in inability to win silverware at Tottenham, that decision won't be up to him. Um, we know from past experience that Daniel Levy is, um, oh, there isn't really anything soft about him um, from a negotiating well, standpoint. He's a... Plus um, a pandemic, right? I mean, plus, like, a pl pandemic. Plus, plus a massively negative economic environment for football where if Paul Pogba isn't leaving Manchester United, or so we assume, then Harry Kane is definitely not leaving Tottenham. Well, I, I think there's a, there's a level, the layer beyond this because I think, my, I mean, we've got another question about this, so perhaps we'll deal with it in more detail later. I have a theory that the kind of the, the top level of the um, the kind of the, the aristocratic class of the transfer market, those top shelves, I think a lot of those players will retain their value. The difficulty for Kane is that um, over time the market is skewed towards heavy spending on very young players, 
but also players there's also kind of a a risk adversity so for someone like Kane who's 27 he's in his, he's, he's in his late 20s he's had a succession of serious injuries um, and anybody watching him would have doubts about his ability to endure top level football over the course of an entire season and you know top level football which by the way grows ever more congested with more tournaments with more flights with more trips across different time zones with more jet lag and we've covered this on the channel a few times before it's a heavily attritional environment um now would you if you even if you had 150 million pounds to spare is harry kane where you go to spend that i don't think so so tottenham is a is a very nebulous situation i think um as a tottenham fan and um as someone who's in contact with a lot of other tottenham fans the prevailing issue for a lot of people is that it's not that the team isn't performing well or that, uh, you know, in the position they are on the table or not going to qualify for the Champions League. It's that as yet, um, nine months into Mourinho's reign, there is no indication of what this side is going to evolve into. There are no uh, there are no shoots of recovery. There's nothing to say, well, we didn't play well today and this went wrong and this went wrong and this went wrong. But these things in six months time, maybe with a little bit of nourishment, perhaps that will work well. There aren't those things yet. And I think that's the thing that Mourinho has to cure first. What's difficult about a situation like this, I think, is um, the intangible um, psychological downturn of a group of people who maybe are realising or are that they are sharing a perception that the team are no longer on the rise and are on a fall, right? And I think with Spurs, it's even more important because they never quite reached those heights. They had a, you know, they've had a fantastic team. They had a fantastic manager. They've their ascendancy has been you know incredible in the context of um you know the financial might of the teams around them over the past sort of five uh, eight years um but in reality they didn't win anything and now it appears that they are they might be looking backwards to see their peak and i think the impact that that can have on a group of people who are also you know also have their own individual aims as you say not to p pick anyone out uh, specifically but players like harry kane players like deli ali or son Hyun min they all obviously have their individual individual ambitions as well as they do their collective ambitions and if you start thinking about how long you're tied into a contract for you start looking at what the next you know three or two three four years at, at tottenham hotspur might be like i imagine at the at this very moment it probably feels um like quite quite disappointing feeling after the highs of the last couple of years i would introduce another theme here um because it's it's become gradually more problematic if you're a tottenham player um and you've gone through the cycle with pochettino and you've come within within reach of the premier league title a couple of times and a champions league final and you saw the way the club behaved in the aftermath of those um ultimately failures unfortunately there was no strengthening. There was no sort of further level of ambition activated by those near successes. So if you're if you're someone like Harry Kane, or to a lesser extent Eric Dyer or Toby Alderweireld or Christian Eriksen, probably isn't the most pertinent example because he's already gone. What do you think? What do you think is your pathway to success at the club? If you've seen this path before and you know that when it matters, when the club is in position to strike, it becomes reticent. It tries to kind of. I mean, I don't want to say it, 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 Tottenham are a cheap club, but in a way they kind of are. They try and get away with things. They try and ride continuity for a bit longer than they should do. And they they don't necessarily provide squads with the tools they need to to get over a hump. Um, and that, I think, Joe, if you're talking about things which are dispiriting, I think that's, that's right at the front of the list. Hey, Alex, I mean, we've talked about the issues that uh, Mourinho has outside of himself. Can we talk about with you the issues that Mourinho has inside of himself or, I, I mean, tactically speaking, <laughs> on the pitch? 
uh, because it, it, it all feels a little stodgy, a little stolid, and it does to me, again, it feels sort of familiar to what I have come to expect of him as a football manager um, and his uh, his impression on a team. What are your impressions of uh, Spurs under Mourinho? I think I think stodgy is a really good word for it. I mean, the the, the problem that that I mean, Seb's alluded to to one of the major issues um, already, which is this porous um, central midfield leading into a defence that has slowed down. Um, I, I think as well what you look at is a lot of hesitancy. Um, so, for example, if you look at the way that, that Spurs try and progress the ball up the pitch, for example, and compare that with a team like Southampton, Southampton are a much more low percentage in terms of success, but they're looking to, to push it forwards a lot. Whereas Spurs, you see a lot of inward passes, you see a lot of passes that are very conservative, recycling possession. I think one of the interesting things with Mourinho is that his systems have often been forged around collective endeavour uh, in terms of defence, but then attacking a lot is left up to the individual abilities of players to transition and attack and create something from it. Um, and, you know, you could see that with Deco at Porto, for example. You could see that with Schneider uh, at Inter. His most successful teams have, have had that kind of electric creativity that sort of allows the rest of it to be slightly less formed and slightly less organised. Um, that's never been Mourinho's strength. His his strength has been kind of, uh, you know, game state manipulation and the ability to create a sense of collective endeavour. Spurs don't really have that at the moment. And, and a couple of the players that maybe could inject that sort of creativity, that ability to transition at pace and in a way that poses other teams' problems are players who either, like Ndombele, have uh, myriad issues with him, um, or or someone like Lo Celso, who maybe isn't getting quite the, the degree of game time. Ahead of that, you, you can't really see it. That's not, you know, Deli Ali is not the sort of 10 who is creative in that way. So I think I think they've got a problem. I think it's one of those instances where, you know, for, I, I agree with everything that's been said before uh, in terms of in terms of investment, in terms of peaking, in terms of players maybe feeling like the club's best days in the short term at least are behind them. But I also think it's one of those very clear instances where a, a squad existed and was good and then a manager was brought in who probably didn't suit that and, and wasn't going to be the manager who could maximise the potential there. I think they need to have a lot more structure in their attacking play. I think they need to have... Uh, more direction in terms of how they're looking to work the ball forwards and, and, and penetrate the lines and create opportunities, which is what they had certainly under Pochettino. Um, and and they don't have it now. I think that's the, the biggest single issue really on the pitch. I don't want to dwindle on this for too long, but um, I remember at, when he was at Manchester United thinking, well, where can Mourinho really go next? He's done all the all the hot spots. You know, there's there's various clubs now that he won't uh, ever manage. Arsenal being one of them, Barcelona being one of them, for example. I'm not sure. You know, Spurs was always, I suppose, an option for thinking about where he might have gone next. But after Spurs, and this is, you know, in no way to um, preemptively uh, lose Mourinho his job. That's not our intention. But I'm going to assume that, let's say, after uh, how long has he been there? Six months. It's coming to eight, right? Yeah. So yeah. in in two years and uh, four months, he probably won't be there anymore, or he'll be about to leave if he hasn't already. Where does he go next? Portuguese national team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think that's um, the, the and and if not that, 
then I can certainly see. I mean, obviously, there's a lot that depends on on the the financial status of of certain regions. But I could I could see him taking a kind of you know oversee and revolutionize football in Qatar or something. Um, Manager of like, the Qatari national team. I like the sound. Well, of that. I, I I think I think Director possibly not Academy. that, but something where he is more in charge of. A whole program of football, um, and and kind of is you know is the man in that particular area, um, that you know something that bluntly appeals to his ego. But I, I would say yes, the the Portuguese national team is the most likely destination. Can you can you um I mean is it not a sign of the times that when when we talk about the idea of Mourinho being in charge of an entire culture rather than <laughs> rather than a team that that's actually quite terrifying. Well, no, <laughs> he's I, the I, real Night King. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it is kind of terrifying, but I also think that there's a there's a slightly that there, there's a quality to some of the appointments that get made in underdeveloped regions where where legacy and impact and personality probably outweighs currency and, and and coaching ability and and I can definitely see a kind of meeting of egos there which would certainly financially I assume be beneficial to Mourinho if it effectively um stalled the rest of his footballing career well he'd love the hotels I know that I know that much um anyway let's move on uh, Israel Sedano why has Bruno Fernandez done so well at Manchester United this season I'm going to answer this one because he's really good at a football is that is that a good I, I knew you wouldn't when, when, you, when you told me to include this question I knew you wouldn't let me down I knew it I just yeah no, here we go. Listen, do you know what? I, I watched the Southampton game. I know um, Alex did too. I thought Bruno Fernandes actually uh, looked a little tired in that game and didn't have quite the same impact. Uh, you know, a few wayward passes. Um, but actually, on the whole, watching that performance, um, which really wasn't that disappointing and uh, feeling like he was off the boil, uh, is a pretty good indicator of the fact that um, uh, he's he's obviously bedded in exceptionally well. And one of my favourite things to watch about him uh, as it is any player in any team that has this ability. Bit of a cliche, it's the sort of thing that Danny Murphy would say, but he always looks to pass the ball forwards. And if anything, against Southampton, that was his problem. He kept passing the ball to the opposition team whilst trying to make a, a, a vertical pass or to kick Manchester United off um, and get that extra few seconds ahead of time to, to break a counter-attack. So he seems perfect for the team in that regard. Uh, he seems to have worked very well with, uh, with Paul Pogba, who also looked quite tired against Southampton. Um, but uh, I don't know if I, uh, Alex, should we come to you first? Because you, you, you've uh, you've analysed the team a couple of times recently for for videos. But I mean, in terms of one player's impact on a team, um, I'm sure there are others this season. But he's certainly up there in terms of the the greatest positive impact from one one player arriving, right? Oh, completely. Um, I think it's been I think it's been hugely beneficial to United. Um, he has effectively solved their midfield issue by by being the player that they lacked in that 10 position. I, I have to be honest, I mean, we did a video before he arrived um, where I looked at how he played at Sporting. And obviously, he's a very, very good player. But there was a, a degree to which I had slight concerns that he was so central to how Sporting played. He was expected to do literally everything. Uh, from a creative perspective, and I, I did wonder whether, being the the, the central figure in, in a dominant team in a lesser league, how he would transition, I suppose psychologically or mentally, to United, and and he appears to, 
like you say, he's taken the responsibility upon himself. Now, if you're looking at an attacking line ahead of you of Rashford, Martial and Greenwood, then then clearly, you know, you are looking to play those guys in behind because he knows they're very, very quick. He knows that they, they make intelligent runs. So there's a degree to which I think he's arrived at a team that has actually facilitated that more maybe than some other teams would have done. Um, but he's adapted incredibly impressively. I mean, the last night's performance was an odd one. I think you're right. United did look tired. Uh, I thought Southampton defended extremely well and pressed very, very well. And that's exactly the kind of environment in which a player who wants maybe a little bit more time to be able to pick that pass um, and where a, a squad is, is feeling the effects of a, a lot of um, you know important games in, in a short space of time is, is not going to do well. But he... He was still trying that stuff. He, he, you know, his head was up. He was scanning the yeah. pitch well. He was looking for those opportunities. So yeah, I, I think he, I think he has been the single most successful um, agent of change on a team so far this season, actually. Um, and I'm kind of, I'm slightly surprised by how well it's gone for him. Yeah, I mean, I, I think another thing to say about the game, uh, the Southampton game. I think six months ago, uh, Manchester United would have lost that game because you're right. Saints were they were great, and I think you know they they are another team who've been on a fantastic run of form since the restart, and have pulled themselves well clear um, of any of any danger as we approach the end of the season. But um, that sort of game, just from a Manchester United example, um, at Old Trafford against a, a team which is considered to be a lesser team where uh, they go one down in the early stages of the game, it's the sort of game that they would have lost. It's the sort of game that the players at the time you didn't feel had the ability to, uh, or the self-belief to, to believe that they could come back into that. And I think a combination of, as you say, Alex, Bruno Fernandes just taking that mantle. I mean, it couldn't be clearer from watching that team in the last few games who um, the creative leader is, even when Pogba is in the team playing in a deeper role and in is, is, is contributing in a way that I suppose um, is an improvement on uh, before uh, the restart or before the lockdown. Um, but it couldn't be clearer who, who the, the player is going through. And I think also one other thing that's improved um, dramatically has been the finishing of that front line. I mean, you know, Mason Greenwood, I, I don't know if he, he was ever not good at scoring goals, but... There have been years, I think, for United supporters with a frustration with um, Rashford to a lesser extent, still there a little bit, Martial to a greater extent, the ability to actually translate those chances that they get into goals. And the first, you know, the two goals that they scored in that in that game against Southampton, you just feel like those players now are in a position where they, they're not worried about missing them and their teammates aren't worried about missing them either. And I think that, you know, even though uh, I would assume at the end it felt like a crushing blow to supporters, just because of how um, positive the form has been recently. Um, I think that's a, it seems like a very, very good sign. And it's hard to look beyond Bruno Fernandes as being the, the catalyst to that improvement, isn't it, Seb? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one thing on Fernandes, one of the things that impresses me is actually his conditioning. It's rare that you get a playmaker who turns up, forget turning up in the middle of the season. It's rare that you get a, a playmaker who appears in, in the Premier League from a foreign country who is able to consistently perform at the level he has. Because generally what you find is that you have a couple of games of, of heavy influence, you know, rich seam of performance, and then fatigue starts to strangle creativity over time. And Fernandez, that hasn't happened. Um, Alex, um, about 10 minutes ago, Alex mentioned Giovanni Lothelso at Spurs, who has started to kind of gain a bit more game time and, and play very well and, and look like a Premier League footballer. But it took him about six months to get there. With Fernandez, you haven't had that time lag. 
And I think that's what's been most impressive. And even if you look at kind of his basic assimilation to the team, which involves obviously um, learning to literally play with Nemanja Matic, Scott McTominay, the players outside of him, the players in front of him, um, just to be able to physically do it, I think that's quite underrated. And that's the thing which really strikes me is, um, I remember seeing the, the goal he scored, uh, I think it was at Brighton, when he ran about 70 yards with United already two goals up and you know looking very much like they'd already won the game. Uh, and it just he looks like um he looks like a Premier League athlete in a way that um a lot of players when trying to make that transition have have become unstuck in the past. Um so seriously, seriously impressive. Yeah. I think there's there's one other quick thing to say on that, and and I agree entirely with Seb. I think it goes also to what you were saying, Joe, about the confidence of finishing, is that Fernandez is not necessarily a vocal player, and I still think that United are lacking that kind of vocal leadership Big time. to a degree Matic is doing it McTominay does it when he's on the pitch but otherwise generally not but what you do see with Fernandez is both the ability to generate confidence because his strikers know that he will find them another chance so even if they do miss that one something else will crop up he just seems to have that ability but also the leadership that comes from having somebody come in and be able to fit into the team, be, as Seb says, uh, physically capable of maintaining those effort levels, making those runs, you know, just inspiring the people around him by his uh, ability to continue to excel even in the late stages of games. And of course, United's player prior to that, who should have been the one who was doing that, was Pogba. And I think Pogba's adjusted really well to playing in a slightly different formation to to the one that suits him. But of course, there was there was so much pressure on Pogba to be the guy who did everything. Plus, he had these issues where he was falling out with Mourinho and and seemed unsettled and everything. And Fernandez has kind of taken that that mantle off him to a degree by saying, you know, like I I will be the one who assumes that pressure. Pogba looks more relaxed now playing in that system because there isn't the expectation that he's going to be the one and Fernandez, rather than wilting under that pressure seems to have really thrived on it it's really interesting you say that Alex because if we disregard the sort of the mistake last night when he got pressed off the ball um I really like Pogba in a situation where his his role is really just to keep the ball moving forward because he's really really good at that if you if you don't expect him to be the kind of do you remember the performance he gave in that Champions League final against Barcelona where everyone kind of assumed that's his default, where he's this incredibly yeah. dynamic box-to-box type. It, even if you don't have that side of his game, even if all you get from Paul Bogba is kind of 10 to 15-yard distribution and that kind of that that sort of slightly understated excellence and the occasional side-footed finish from 25 yards, that's a real asset to have in your football team. And, and it's, yeah. it's it, I couldn't agree more with Alex. It's, it's actually really nice to see it being, this, seeing the Manchester United conversation being about something other than him. And him just being part of a, a department within the side. And it's just, it suits him. He also has the ability that I think is so, so important. And Spurs had this when they had Moussa Dembele. Of having a player in the deeper midfield line who can break the press yep. with dribbling. And then have the ability to pick the pass. They don't have to carry the ball all the way up the pitch. They don't have to be the person who is winning it back and then popping up to to score a header or something. It's just that first break, isn't it? It's just that. It's first the first break, and yeah. and then when the first break leads to, like you say, a really nice, cleverly crafted pass of fifteen or twenty yards to a group of players in Fernandez and Rashford and Martial, etc., who can then also break the second line really easily. 
that's why United are such a front foot team now, because they've got that layer of creativity and the ability to break the press further down on the pitch. Uh, and I think that's really important. I mean, I would go back to, to I think uh, we, we turned this conversation into a, into a video, actually, the goal that, uh, that showed that Manchester United's midfield is, is maybe fixed now. And I think that I think that goal goes to prove every single point in this conversation. Uh, it's the third goal against Sheffield United, Martial's hat-trick winning goal. Um, Paul Pogba finds himself in the right-back position in his own half with only the centre-backs and, and manages to play a, a pass which breaks two lines up to Fernandez. Who, there, who is there to then take the creative burden off of Paul Pogba being in two places at once, back heels it to Martial, and then the Rashford-Martial relationship, which has developed more and more over the last couple of seasons, was enough to finish the rest. I think that's such a, a perfectly descriptive goal uh, to, to, to back up the points that, that both of you have just made. And wasn't it a wonderful thing to see? Anyway, let's move on, though, uh, because we only have uh, about 15 minutes left. And core blimey, there's a lot to get through. William Milburn, uh, will the financial effects of the pandemic hit the transfer market hard for everyone? Or will clubs like Man City, PSG, Barca and Madrid just be able to outspend everyone even more than they already can? So to kick us off here, I found a, um, a piece I was reading something earlier by Laurie Whitwell. It's based around United, but it serves to make a broader point too. Laurie says... The Athletic understands that United are calculating for a hit due to the pandemic of 110 to 115 million pounds. Their chief financial officer revealed on May 21st during the club's third quarter results that a 28 million pound reduction had already been incurred and the overall loss because of COVID-19 is predicted to eventually reach four times as much. So with that backdrop, uh, I think Laurie goes on in that piece to express that the club still have money to spend this summer and they're still confident of doing so. But of course, the purse strings uh, all round are probably going to be tightened for understandable reasons. I mean, just to start with um, what we what we know about the pandemic uh, at the moment, um, that you know we don't have a vaccine. We assume that there will be uh, second waves, as we've seen in some countries already. It's possible that unless there is a more sensible system of localized lockdown, the countries might go back into lockdown again. Although the the experiment of restarting football without uh, supporters in the stadium seems to have been very very positive. Um, and have 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 had positive results in terms of a, a lack of um, of new cases within those bubbles. So I think it's unlikely that we'll see football stopped again. However, of course, there will be a continued financial impact on the sport. So we are probably likely to see uh, all clubs spending less money this summer. I think, uh, Seb, you mentioned earlier that a point you wanted to expand on that uh, you know you have a theory that. The higher higher priced players will retain their value. Do you therefore think that means that we'll see fewer players moving? I mean, we've heard with Pogba as an example already as a player that is far less likely now uh, to leave Manchester United than he was earlier in the year as a result of potentially being priced out or other clubs being slightly more cautious with their spending. Um, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think there'll be fewer transfers within a specific range. I think um, I, th- I still think there'll be a lot of movement, Joe, because um, pandemic or no pandemic, the game's imperatives remain and clubs have needs going to the transfer market. What I think we'll see is more creativity. So I think we'll have not literal swap deals, but I think clubs will look to find situations of mutual benefit. Um, so they will try and remove contracts which don't suit them. They'll try and um, do deals which are kind of football's equivalent of payment in kind. 
Um, so, you know, I've got this right back that I don't really want, and I see that you've got that winger up, for, uh, uh, you know, who's on the fringes of your score, which would who, who might fit quite nicely into my first team. I think that's going to be the sort of the mentality. Um, whether that equates to, I mean, how what 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 the limit is, I'm not sure. Whether there's kind of um, what the sort of the financial value of that kind of transfer is, I'm not sure. Because I think beyond, you know, in the past we had deals where you, know, you almost got the sense that anything between about 30 and 40 million was a sort of standard fee. Now it's kind of that buys you a sort of a seven to eight out of ten player. And I would class that as a as as sort of the transfer market's middle class, and I think that's the group of players that we punished. Um, at a higher level, look when, when we when Manchester United release information like that, um, there's you have to look at it in two different ways. Firstly, obviously there's a, a degree of truth to it naturally because they've um, they've lost an awful lot of matchday revenue. But one of United's big issues in the past has been the tax imposed on them for being Manchester United. So anytime they try and negotiate for a Fred, a Juan Mata, for instance, or a Harry Maguire, the selling club knows you have the cash resources to pay our asking price and you're going to pay our asking price. So it does quite suit them to release that information. I don't expect a Manchester United or a Manchester City to suddenly retract their ambitions. In Say, fact, saying that, though, it, yeah. there were rumours, I've no idea uh, to the truth of these, but I remember reading about rumours that they were planning on offering £50 million for Jadon Sancho, which which even in the current climate seems a little low. Well, I, I would say, look at some of the moves United have made over the last few months. Look at um, the changes they've made to the way that information goes in and out of the club and who that person, who the, the person responsible for that is. They're trying to control the message. So... If Jadon Sancho is available, Manchester United will try and buy him most likely and they will try and buy him for much more than £50 million. It's a negotiating position. Um, because truth be told, look, it's really cynical to, to think like this, but what an opportunity this period of time is for clubs like United, like City, like PSG, like Madrid, probably not Barcelona because of the political climate. You have a chance now with the relaxation of FFP um, to put a huge distance between yourself and your rivals or in City and United's case, to close the chasm that is, that is um that has grown between them and Liverpool. Um if you're not if you're dealing in a um in a world without consequences, it's a tremendous advantage to have at the moment. So of course you're going to try and exploit it. Alex, what do you think as a supporter of a of a club uh, the size of Southampton? How do you feel that this is going to to impact uh, your club? I think it's it's interesting that I I've been speaking to a number of athletic journalists recently for an upcoming series and it does seem like with the smaller clubs, um, there certainly will be uh, a wariness around overcommitting financially. I think that's as much to do with the uncertainty around next season as it is to do with the reduced coffers uh, this season because of the fall off in match day revenue. Um, I think you know we are we have been seeing over the last few years a smartening up of recruitment generally um, and certain clubs uh, looking to take advantage of inefficiencies in the market or increasing their use of data to try and find players that are undervalued. Um, this is an opportunity maybe for, for certain of those players uh, or certain of those clubs, sorry, to take advantage of that because you have to remember that while uh, clubs may have less money to spend, the clubs that they're buying from also have less money in the bank as well. So, you know, this is why 
there's an expectation that you'll see a depressed market, that means that some of these bargains may be even more bargainy. So a club like Southampton, I would expect them probably to, you know, spend... Sorry, even more bargainy. <laughs> yeah, sure. Good. Um, Very nice. Know, I, I wouldn't expect Southampton to spend more than, you know, 40 or 50 million pounds, depending on, obviously, how far up the league table uh, we finish. Um, and there are going to be clubs in the Premier League that probably will spend half that amount. Um, but the clubs that are already doing smart things will continue to do smart things. And the clubs that are are able to spend £120 million on a player that they probably don't need because they've got a really good player in that position already um, will continue to try and do that. You know what's really interesting is that actually I think this period will shine lights on will shine light on clubs doing things well. The people who the people the, the clubs that will succeed during this period are those who have alignment within their organisations, teams where um, the technical sporting director and the coaching staff and the owners and everybody in between is all pursuing the same direction because that's where you get the kind of the incremental gains from signing a player who you might not have taken a risk on in a in a sort of a norm in a more normal climate, but which you want to which you'll you'll gamble on and which you'll allow your your coaching staff to work with and to extract the most benefit out of. And it's that kind of club rather than the kind of the um, the more West Hammy style of organisation where you just go, oh, I'll have that player and I'll pay this much for him and brilliant and into my first team he goes. The, the clubs with the better processes are going to prosper, I think. I, th- I think there's one last very quick point to make on this, which is that if the five substitutes rule is maintained for the upcoming season, then I think certain of those intelligent clubs will see this as a good opportunity for development where they can take a punt on one or two younger players from other leagues and and they will have more of an opportunity to blood them um because there are more substitutes and and the the the, the flux of games will be will be more aligned to that kind of thing so it, it could be a good opportunity for that as well it sounds like what we're saying is that, well, to draw a, a cultural comparison, it sounds like what we're saying is that when, you know, the War of the Five Kings occurs, there are opportunities <laughs> for groups like uh, the Greyjoys from the Iron Islands. You know, they've been they've been practiced reavers. They've been reaving for years. They know exactly what they're doing. Yeah, and this yeah. is an opportunity to show them for what they're good at, which is reaving. Um, anyway, we it's have a, six y- minutes to address Everton, so don't interrupt <laughs> me with your joke because I've done mine now. Alex, if you need to go, because I know you've got a, you've got something to do in six minutes' time. If you need to drop off, you drop off. Um, I don't think that's a problem, Adonis. Uh, is it? Is it a problem? It's not a problem. Let's hear, let's hear from our producer, Adonis, now. It's not a problem. God, he's so, he's so short, isn't he? He's an Arsenal fan. We're not talking about Arsenal. He's probably very upset about that. Thanks, Adonis. Uh, Alex, if you need to drop off, you drop off, okay? But I'll start with you so that we can get your bit out of the way. We're going to talk about Everton. Matt S. asks, how in the world will Ancelotti fix Everton? And also, how's Brands done? Marcel Brands as a director of football. I'm going to start us uh, here by saying, uh, reading a thing from Greg O'Keefe. Everton have only kept one clean sheet in their last 17 away games in the Premier League, conceding at least two goals in 10 of those fixtures. When facing sides starting the day in the top half, they've won just three from their last 32 Premier League games, and only the top flight's bottom four clubs have won fewer away points. Only Newcastle have conceded more away goals. It's a sorry state of affairs. Uh, Alex, uh, let's start with you, though, and talk about Marcel Brands as a, uh, as a director of football. I know you love that topic. Um, what's your vibe? My vibe is one of confusion 
um, which is my kind of standard position when it comes to matters Everton. And I know that this is a confusion that's shared across... Uh, that There happen to be quite a few Everton fans in the analytics community, and they're all equally baffled. Um, I think he's been very unlucky with uh, Gabamin. You know, this this was exactly the sort of pressing, hard-tackling, ball-winning defensive midfielder that was brought in to replace uh, Adrissa Gay, who was exceptional for Everton and covered up a lot of their deficiencies. And, of course, he's basically been injured the entire time since he was purchased. Yeah. Um, so that is really, really unlucky. Uh, I think other of their purchases, like I don't understand Andre Gomez, but then I know he's a very divisive figure. Some Everton fans think he's fantastic. Uh, others don't. They, they just... They clearly don't seem to have what Seb was talking about just before we came to this question, which is a distinct lack of a plan. And it's odd, given that Marcel Brands is this kind of fated figure as a director of football. Um, maybe it's to do with the with the managerial changes and the inability of Brands over a relatively short period of time to compensate for the fact that Everton have had so many managers of so many different styles in such a, a shortened period of time. I would expect this upcoming transfer window to be the one where we see whether Brands does have some sort of plan. But then at the same time, how long is Ancelotti going to be there for? It's kind of a failing project at the moment, albeit one with significant financial backing. Uh, if I were Ancelotti, I'd be worrying about what this is doing to my reputation and my ability to get a good job at a, you know, maybe a swan song at a big European club. Um, yeah, Everton are a mess. Everton are a mess, really. <laughs> Searing. That's uh, all I've okay. got to say on that. They, you no, know, they, like they've it. got they've got a few good young players still. Um, you know, Calvert Lewin, I like a lot. Richarlison, I like oh, a lot. Yeah. But they're also they're t- Everton are two or three sales away from being really quite a poor team. You know, if they were to lose a couple of those key figures, um, then they would really, really struggle. And they're not a team that seem to have a plan on the pitch, and they're not a team that really, at the moment, seem to have one off it. Oh. Hey, Alex has got to go. Let's wave goodbye to Alex. Bye, Alex. Bye, everyone. That was fun. Yeah. Bye, Alex. Oh, good. Uh, Seb, uh, let's just carry on in Alex's absence now and talk mainly about him and his personal life. Um, no, let's talk about <laughs> Everton. Uh, how in the world will Ancelotti fix Everton? And I don't mean that as a uh, as a <laughs> as a symbol for for Alex and his 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 domestic situation. Okay. Um I think it's interesting. I I think the I think the caveat here is that um Everton and Ancelotti are operating under um pretty difficult situation. Um we know that obviously this transition to Bramley Moore Dock is taking place. Um and we've seen how tricky that can be for other clubs in the past. We know from our um our conversation with Paddy Boylan uh, a few weeks ago about how um, whilst the, the team is in a state of flux, the club is also pursuing a, how to describe it, a more of a blue chip commercial direction. Um, so we've got all these moving parts at Everton and um, underneath that, of course, lies a team, which um, I agree with, with Alex. Um, I mean, I agree with Alex's assessment. I just think also it's worth remembering what Ancelotti inherited, which was essentially um, the, the, the kind of detritus left in the aftermath of, you know, several other failed regimes. You still have a lot of players there that aren't really fit for purpose, and you have, you know, even you, you even have a couple of white elephants. I mean, all of a sudden, that that fifty million pounds spent on Gilfie Sigurdsson looks like a terrible, terrible transfer. Yeah. Um, as does um, the near fifty million spent on a combination of Alex Awobi and Theo Walcott. 
I agree with Alexandre Gomez as well. I, I, I think he's a nice player. Um, he's good to watch. Is he, a, is he an excellent player? Is he the kind of player who is going to win you games when it really matters? I don't know. It always feels as if he, re- he retains the kind of the, the reputation he had when he was at Valencia, where he was thought of as a very, very good player, but has never quite developed into that. He's never realized no. that potential. Um, it may well happen, but I just haven't seen it yet. So I, I think it, I think first and foremost, it requires a big restructuring. It requires a fairly brutal analysis of who is and who is not valuable to this project. Um, I think we've named all of the players that, um, that are. I really like Mason Holgate as well. I think he's going to be, um, I think he's been a bit of a slow developer, but I, I think he's still set to be a, an excellent centre centre half in the future. Um, nice sort of, you know, perfect to play on the on the right side of a back three. Absolutely perfect because he's kind of, he's somewhere between a centre half and a fullback, so it's, that role is really made for him. Um, but yeah, they need major surgery, and also they need to they need to start employing some of that that joined up thinking. And, and until until Angelotti has the benefit of that. Um, it's not really a question about how he fixes everything because he hasn't had the, he hasn't doesn't yet have the tools to um, to achieve anything substantial there. And it's it's interesting because he's not a as a coach he's not someone that you think of as you don't think of him uh, in the last stage of his career as being a, a long term manager. You don't think of him as someone that installs a new culture. He's more of he's a, not a troublemaker like either. No, absolutely not. He's 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 not a he's not a Mourinho. He's not a fire starter. He's not going to come in and start breaking things for the sake of it just to see what happens. He's a bomb. He's a he is. <laughs> are we he's the manager. About Alex now, or are we still talking about Emerson? That's confusing for me. <laughs> he's the manager you bring in when you've got a really really talented squad that's underperforming. Now yeah. Everton have an underperforming squad, but it's not really really talented. Um, so it's interesting. I, I I but you know the um, the responsibility lies well above him at the moment. Okay, so Matt S, in in response to your question, I'm going to rephrase it. How in the world will Everton fix Everton uh, with great difficulty and copious amounts of hard work? Listen, we've run out of time. There were other questions. Um, We're going to do this again in a couple of weeks' time, so we'll revisit the questions that we've missed here and ask you for some more as well. We were going to do this more Um, often, weren't we? We were going to do the three of us and uh, do a bit more of that. I think so. Um, Before we go, I would like to remind people about The Athletic. Oh, incidentally, um, and Adonis, I'll address this to you as well as our new producer. I went to the pub uh, on on Sunday for quite a long time with producer Ben of uh, uh, Muddy Knees Media, the Totally Football Show, and previously of uh, Football Weekly. It's, It's controversial to go to the pub. But how's Adonis going to react to that? I mean, you know, that's a bit... Oh, I see. I thought you meant in the context of lockdown. I thought, God, have I broken the no, rules? No, no, no. The reason I bring it up... Reason I bring it up is because uh, producer Ben uh, told me that he he does all the adverts for uh, the Totally Football Show, and he has his producers help with the uh, <laughs> with with reading out the adverts. So I thought I'd try and get Adonis to help me with this advert now. Um, <laughs> Adonis, uh, just to earn your keep, come on now. Uh, where can people go if they want to read more about the Athletic? Uh, they can go to theathletic.com forward slash tifo for a thirty day free trial. And I was busy on the weekend. <laughs> oh, Never fancied her anyway. <laughs> I feel a little lost now and alone. Uh, well, anyway, thanks for the addition there, Adonis. He really knows what he's talking about. And uh, Seb, uh, thank you to you. Been a pleasure, Joe. Thank you very much. Right, we'll be back uh, next week with something else. We genuinely don't know what it is yet, but we've got some exciting guests lined up for the for the coming months. So stay tuned in. 
for that if that's it i mean don't do that because that's not how podcasts work hey yeah. actually we, we one of our exciting guests actually confirmed during this podcast being recorded oh who's that do you want to well, say i can't tell you that yet no but i will tell you once you we can't tell me but, or you can't tell the audience i can tell you i just can't tell you whilst we're recording tell you what just um, text it to me right now and i'll i'll okay. react so the audience will will, will okay. have a good feel that's for, a good bit. That's, that's for the cool. level of the of the guests because uh, of course okay. there'll be different noises i might make based on how exciting this is you know, all ranging from a uh, to a oh, okay, and that's the real some... that's the real noise. It's just come through there. Yeah, oh, that's pretty cool. Pretty good news there. Yeah. That's um, so um, that that got confirmed during our pod. So that will be coming in probably, I think, probably early August. I think. Okay, one more yeah. time for that. Oh, and uh, that's all for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, all the best to you, your loved ones and your family members if they if they're not all in the same group and uh we'll <laughs> it's, like, it's just got to stop haven't i, I don't know how to stop talking just, just and now just... it stops <laughs>